0: CHAPTER One OF THE PERMANENT HUSBAND. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lee Smalley. The Permanent Husband by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Translated by Frederick Wishaw. CHAPTER One Summer had come, and Velchaninoff, contrary to his expectations, was still in St. Petersburg. His trip to the south of Russia had fallen through, and there seemed no end to the business which had detained him. This business, which was a lawsuit as to certain property, had taken a very disagreeable aspect, Three months ago the thing had appeared to be by no means complicated, in fact there had seemed to be scarcely any question as to the rights and wrongs of the matter. But all seemed to change suddenly. "'Everything else seems to have changed for the worse, too,' said Velchaninoff to himself over and over again. He was employing a clever lawyer, an eminent man, and an expensive one, too.' but in his impatience and suspicion he began to interfere in the matter himself. He read and wrote papers, all of which the lawyer put into his waste-paper basket, holus bolus, called in continually at the courts and offices, made inquiries, and confused and worried everybody concerned in the matter. So at least the lawyer declared, and begged him for mercy's sake to go away to the country somewhere. But he could not make up his mind to do so. He stayed in town and enjoyed the dust, and the hot nights, and the closeness of the air of St. Petersburg, things which are enough to destroy anyone's nerves. His lodgings were somewhere near the great theatre. He had lately taken them, and did not like them. Nothing went well with him, his hypochondria increased with each day, and he had long been a victim to that disorder." Velchaninoff was a man who had seen a great deal of the world, he was not quite young, thirty-eight years old, perhaps thirty-nine or so, and all this old age, as he called it, had fallen upon him quite unawares. However, as he himself well understood, he had aged more in the quality than in the number of the years of his life and if his infirmities were really creeping upon him, they must have come from within and not from outside causes. He looked young enough still. He was a tall, stout man, with light-brown, thick hair, without a suspicion of white about it, and a light beard that reached halfway down his chest. At first sight you might have supposed him to be of a lax, careless disposition or character. But on studying him more closely you would have found that, on the contrary, the man was decidedly a stickler for the proprieties of this world, and withal brought up in the ways and graces of the very best society. His manners were very good, free but graceful, in spite of this lately acquired habit of grumbling and reviling things in general. He was still full of the most perfect aristocratic self-confidence. Probably, he did not himself suspect to how great an extent this was so, though he was a most decidedly intelligent, I may say clever, even talented man. His open, healthy-looking face was distinguished by an almost feminine refinement, which quality gained him much attention from the fair sex. He had large blue eyes, eyes which ten years ago had known well how to persuade and attract such clear merry careless eyes they had been, that they invariably brought over to his side any person he wished to gain. Now, when he was nearly forty years old, their ancient, kind, frank expression had died out of them, and a certain cynicism, a cunning, an irony very often, and yet another variety of expression, of late, an expression of melancholy or pain, undefined but keen, had taken the place of the earlier attractive qualities of his eyes. This expression of melancholy especially showed itself when he was alone, and it was a strange fact that the gay, careless, happy fellow of a couple of years ago, the man who could tell a funny story so inimitably, should now love nothing so well as to be all alone. He intended to throw up most of his friends, a quite unnecessary step, in spite of his present financial difficulties. Probably his vanity was to blame for this intention. He could not bear to see his old friends in his present position. With his vain, suspicious character it would be most unpalatable to him. But his vanity began to change its nature in solitude. It did not grow less, on the contrary, but it seemed to develop into a special type of vanity which was unlike its old self. This new vanity suffered from entirely different causes, higher causes, if I may so express it," he said, and if there really be higher and lower motives in this world. He defined these higher things as matters which he could not laugh at, or turn to ridicule when happening in his own individual experience. Of course it would be quite another thing with the same subjects in society. By himself he could not ridicule them but put him among other people and he would be the first to tear himself from all of those secret resolutions of his conscience made in solitude, and laugh them to scorn. Very often, on rising from his bed in the morning, he would feel ashamed of the thoughts and feelings which had animated him during the long sleepless night, and his nights of late had been sleepless. He seemed suspicious of everything and everybody, great and small and grew mistrustful of himself. One fact stood out clearly, and that was that during those sleepless nights his thoughts and opinions took huge leaps and bounds, sometimes changing entirely from the thoughts and opinions of the daytime. This fact struck him very forcibly, and he took occasion to consult an eminent medical friend he spoke in fun but the doctor informed him that the fact of feelings and opinions changed during meditations at night and during sleeplessness was one long recognized by science and that that was especially the case with persons of strong thinking power and of acute feelings he stated further that very often the beliefs of a whole life are uprooted under the melancholy influence of night and inability to sleep and that often the most fateful resolutions are made under the same influence, that sometimes this impressionability to the mystic influence of the dark hours amounted to a malady, in which case measures must be taken, the radical manner of living should be changed, diet considered, a journey undertaken if possible, etc., etc. Velchaninoff listened no further, but he was sure that in his own case there was decided malady. Very soon his morning meditations began to partake of the nature of those of the night, but they were more bitter. Certain events of his life now began to recur to his memory more and more vividly. They would strike him suddenly, and without apparent reason things which had been forgotten for ten or fifteen years some so long ago that he thought it miraculous that he should have been able to recall them at all but that was not all for after all what man who has seen any life has not hundreds of such recollections of the past the principal point was that all this past came back to him now with an absolutely new light thrown upon it and he seemed to look at it from an entirely new and unexpected point of view. Why did some of his acts appear to him now to be nothing better than crimes? It was not merely in the judgment of his intellect that these things appeared so to him now. Had it been only his poor sick mind, he would not have trusted it. But his whole being seemed to condemn him. He would curse, and even weep, over these recollections of the past. If anyone had told him a couple of years since, that he would weep over anything, he would have laughed the idea to scorn. At first he recalled the unpleasant experiences of his life, certain failures in society, humiliations. He remembered how some designing person had so successfully blackened his character that he was requested to cease his visits to a certain house, how once, and not so very long ago, he had been publicly insulted, and had not challenged the offender. How once an epigram had been fastened to his name by some witty person, in the midst of a party of pretty women, and he had not found a reply. He remembered several unpaid debts, and how he had most stupidly run through two very respectable fortunes. Then he began to recall facts belonging to a higher order he remembered that he had once insulted a poor old gray-headed clerk, and that the latter had covered his face with his hands and cried, which Velchaninoff had thought a great joke at the time, but now looked upon in quite another light. Then he thought how he had once, merely for fun, set a scandal going about the beautiful little wife of a certain schoolmaster, and how the husband had got to hear the rumor. He, Velchaninoff, had left the town shortly after and did not know how the matter had ended but now he fell to wondering and picturing to himself the possible consequences of his action and goodness knows where this theme would not have taken him to if he had not suddenly recalled another picture that of a poor girl whom he had been ashamed of and never thought of loving but whom he had betrayed and forsaken her and her child when he left st petersburg He had afterwards searched for this girl and her baby for a whole year, but never found them. Of this sort of recollections there were, alas, but too many, and each one seemed to bring along with it a train of others. His vanity began to suffer, little by little, under these memories. I have said that his vanity had developed into a new type of vanity. There were moments, few albeit, in which he was not even ashamed of having no carriage of his own, now, or of being seen by one of his former friends in shabby clothes, or when, if seen and looked at by such a person contemptuously, he was high-minded enough to suppress even a frown. Of course such moments of self-oblivion were rare. But, as I said before, His vanity began, little by little, to change away from its former quarters, and to centre upon one question, which was perpetually ranging itself before his intellect. There is some power or other, he would muse, sarcastically, somewhere, which is extremely interested in my morals, and sends me these damnable recollections and tears of remorse. Let them come, by all means, but they have not the slightest effect on me for I haven't a scrap of independence about me, in spite of my wretched forty years, I know that for certain. Why, if it were to happen so, that I should gain anything by spreading another scandal about that schoolmaster's wife, for instance that she had accepted presents from me, or something of that sort, I should certainly spread it without a thought. But though no other opportunity ever did occur, of maligning the schoolmistress, yet the very thought alone that if such an opportunity were to occur he would inevitably seize it, was almost fatal to him at times. He was not tortured with memory at every moment of his life. He had intervals of time to breathe and rest in. But the longer he stayed, the more unpleasant did he find his life in St. Petersburg. July came in. At certain moments he felt inclined to throw up his lawsuit and all, and go down to the Crimea but after an hour or so he would despise his own idea, and laugh at himself for entertaining it. "'These thoughts won't be driven away by a mere journey down south,' he said to himself, when they have once begun to annoy me. Besides, if I am easy in my conscience now, I surely need not try to run away from any such worrying recollections of past days. Why should I go, after all?' he resumed, in a strain of melancholy philosophizing. This place is a very heaven for a hypochondriac like myself. What with the dust and the heat and the discomfort of this house, what with the nonsensical swagger and pretense of all these wretched little civil servants in the departments I frequent. Everyone is delightfully candid, and candor is undoubtedly worthy of all respect. I won't go away. I'll stay and die here rather than go. End of chapter 1